Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me uh, this morning to the book of Daniel. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's some Bibles on the back cart that you certainly can use or just follow along uh, with the insert in your bulletin. Uh, we continue this morning in our study of the book of Daniel. This is week three, uh, chapter three. Uh, in this book about faithfulness. And remember, this is first and foremost a book about the faithfulness of our God. But it's also a book that is given to us as an example of faithfulness in a foreign land, the faithfulness of God's servants. And we see that theme here again this morning in Daniel chapter 3 as we momentarily leave Daniel, uh, the one who wrote the book, the one who Uh, is named most in the book. We leave Daniel behind and we focus on his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I'll speak to you by their God-given names, not their Babylonian names. Where Daniel is in Daniel chapter 3, we don't exactly know. Daniel had been promoted Uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, and so it's possible that he was gone on state business. He certainly is not part of this account explicitly, uh, not explicitly named. If he were around, I suspect he would have been in lockstep with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But to this morning, we move to Daniel chapter 3, and again, it's a lengthy passage. I told you this was going to happen. We're going to read big chunks of God's Word, big chunks of Scripture, because they all hold together as chapters. And so, uh, if you're able and willing, I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's Word as I read to you this morning, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through Daniel 4, verse 3. Listen as I read. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of all the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and counselors, and treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces provinces, gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought, and so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace And who is this God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace." And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast... Three men bound into the fire. And they answered and they said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and there was no smell of fire that had come upon them. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the, all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It seemed particularly appropriate to sing the Gloria Patri after such a passage like that, such a, an account. But I don't know about you, as you hear this story, a story that for many of us we grew up seeing in our Sunday school curriculum, in our Sunday school materials, one of the most striking stories and experiences of God's servants in the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but when you hear it again, maybe for the hundredth time, it feels still, I think to many of us, it feels so distant. It feels, it feels so ancient. It feels, especially to our modern minds, just so, so unbelievable almost like a fairy tale. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is history. And more than that, this is God's Word given first to a people in exile and given now to a people in exile here today. And so, as we begin acknowledging the reality of these events, as we think about this story, I want to do so framing our thoughts for the next few minutes around two truths for God's people. And the first one is this, God demands that He have no rival. God demands that He have no rival. Last week, in order to help our, our modern minds um, understand a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar and his, his craziness, 
in the book of Daniel. I compared uh, Nebuchadnezzar to the modern-day tyrant Kim Jong-un, who we hear a lot in the news about, and today even more so. I think it's a helpful comparison. A few days ago, my family and I uh, were sitting down, and, and I had recorded a documentary that I wanted to watch, and it was a documentary entitled, uh, CNN put it out as a documentary entitled, The Secret State Inside North Korea. And it was an unprecedented look. I had never seen such a, such a view of this country. It was an unprecedented look at the life and the mindset of the Korean people, of the North Korean people. And of course, it was, it was very well controlled uh, and planned by the guides who were taking this CNN correspondence around the country. But it was revealing nonetheless. It was revealing in the sense that these people, sadly, as they were being interviewed, were firmly under the grip, both physically, but as well as emotionally and and mentally and even spiritually of a false ideology and of an egotistical leader. It really gave some perspective to all the the world events and the news stories that we hear uh, about North Korea. And and I was studying this week and, and learned that you don't even have to watch a documentary to understand North Korea, that you actually can still go to North Korea if you so desire. There are still tourism uh, websites and tourism outfits. Uh, tourism is still a thing in the Democratic Public, excuse me, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as they call it. Of course, the U.S. State Department uh, warns heavily for you not to go to North Korea, but you certainly are welcome to do so. And I was, so I, so I went surfing on some uh, tour websites, and I found this on one of the Western tour websites into North Korea. It said, most, if not all, tour groups to the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, most, if not all, tour groups are asked to solemnly bow and to lay flowers in front of the statues of King Kim Il-sung when visiting monuments of national importance. If you're not prepared to do this, do not even try to enter North Korea. And I thought, wow. So maybe the experience of this text is not so ancient after all. It's not so distant after all. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, I remind you, is a young man who at this time in the writing of Daniel is the most powerful man on the planet. And yet as we've looked at already, he is a man plagued with great insecurity. With great power comes great insecurity that you are going to lose that power. And it's insecurity that for Nebuchadnezzar is fueled by these divinely inspired nightmares. In last week's chapter, last week's account was centered around one of those nightmares. 
And as we come to chapter 3, those nightmares and, and the explanation that Daniel, by Yahweh, had given of what they meant, the declaration of praise that Nebuchadnezzar gave as a result of being given that interpretation and that explanation, as we come to chapter 3, that is all long forgotten, isn't it? Now, in light of where we were last week, the, the transition from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3 in the narrative, is it's a bit jolting. Now, just so you know, Nebuchadnezzar hasn't turned on a dime. It's not as if there was one night or 24 hours between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Actually, we think there were several years from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. So, as, as, many have not, as many as nine years have passed since the events of last week to now this week. Nevertheless, life and responsibility and pride have gotten back into the way of Nebuchadnezzar's mindset, and he's forgotten all that Yahweh just showed him through his servant Daniel. His humility of chapter 2, verse 47 is a thing of the past, and yet that prophecy, that prophecy about that statue, it's still lingering in his mind. It's still lingering in his mind because, you see, it didn't rub Nebuchadnezzar the right way that his kingdom will be short-lived and that it will be soon taken over by another. Remember those words, after you? Daniel kept saying, after you will come. And so, he will do what he can do, all that he can do to prevent such a thing from happening, and he will make a statement to that effect. To that, to that fact. And so, the dream is about to become a reality. The dream is about to become a statue. And this statue will be bold and brash. It will be 90 feet high. It will be nine feet wide. It will be like a, a soaring column shooting up to the sky for, for all to see. And this statue will not just have a head of gold like the dream called for. No, this whole thing is going to be gold as if to say all of the, all of the kingdoms that come after me, they're, they're not even there. I am the kingdom. And it will be erected in the plains of Dura where nothing will challenge its height. Do you see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here? Now, we don't know whether this image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up is an image of himself, whether it's an image of one of his gods, or whether it's an image that represents something else. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. They all represent the same thing. This king, this kingdom, these gods are owed your utmost praise, O peoples of the land. But just building the statue is not enough. No, in the dream, do you remember the dream, those of you who were here last week? In the dream, as it got down to the, to the bottom of the statue, there was a mixture of elements. There was a mixture of iron and clay, and, and it didn't mix well. And that was ultimately the demise of the statue as the stone rolled and crushed the legs and the base of the statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar knows he can't have, he can't have disunity in his kingdom. 
He needs buy-in. He needs allegiance from everybody. There can be no fractures in what he's building. And so he gathers everyone under his thumb, and he gathers them all together for a worship service, for a loyalty check. Are you with me? Do you see what I've built? Do you see what we're going to build together? Are you with me? It's not really a question because it's not really a choice. If you are with Him, no matter your deity, no matter your understanding, just mindlessly bow when you hear the music. And if you don't, death by fire awaits. It's as simple as that. We're all one under me, Nebuchadnezzar says. I am the one that you need the most. Brothers and sisters, it's no coincidence that this monument was built in much the same place as the Tower of Babel years ago. I mean, this is a long-standing issue with sinful man. This is just another example of man declaring his autonomy from his Creator and his Sustainer. And God reminds us that He demands that He have no rivals. So when God established His people, Israel, He told them, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above. You shall not bow down or serve them. I mean, the command is clear. Israel's history is clear as well that they struggled with this command. They struggled with this command. In fact, the very reason they are in Babylon is because they struggled with this command to hold Yahweh above all others. And now here we have a flashpoint. As God's servants finding their way in a foreign land, they have a decision to make, a life or death decision. It's a decision as we think about it in our modern minds. It's one that we pray that we will never be forced to make, that our children will never be forced to make, even though we know as we prayed that countless Christians across the globe every day are making this decision. And the narrator, Daniel, doesn't tell us Specifically, he doesn't show us the decision that's made. No, we find out about the decision through these tattletales, right? The Chaldeans of verse 8. You might wonder, why are these guys so concerned about these three Jews? Well, these are not just Chaldeans ethnically. These are Chaldeans in regards to astrology. These are the astrologers. These are the ones who Daniel and his friends made look like fools when they correctly interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the last chapter. These are the ones who had been leapfrogged, who had missed out on their promotions because of these Jews. They had every reason to throw these men under the bus. And it's amazing to think that those 
men, those Jews, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their job was over the affairs of the province of, of Babylon. And here is a, is a great gathering which requires all kinds of, of logistical moving parts, maybe even some construction logistics of actually building this statue. And how many of those responsibilities actually fell on these men? And yet all the while, they know that they are going to have to draw a line in the sand. Maybe they knew it was coming. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they were involved. Maybe they weren't. But when it came down to the music being played, these three men stood. Even when Nebuchadnezzar came to them and and gave them a second chance, he personally interacted with them. Okay, here we go. The music's going to play once again. Give you another chance. Go. And what do they say? We have no need to answer you because our God has no rivals. I want us to think for a moment about the way that these men could have rationalized staying safe and making a different decision. I mean, after all, God has put us in these positions Surely He doesn't want us to to lose our influence by a certain sentence of death. I mean, doesn't He need us in these high places? We can accomplish so much good here. And and at the end of the day, this statue, we know, we know in our heart of hearts that it's just metal it's worthless, it doesn't mean anything, it has no real power. We know that he just set this thing up, he just created it. We serve the God who set this king in place as he sets up monuments to himself. So, may, so maybe we could just give, just give a quick bow and not really mean it. It's interesting that none of that rationalization took place, and yet, isn't that the lie in our lives? Isn't that the lie that sin spews and that we believe in a million different ways? Sin tells us that we know better than God in this situation, that He really didn't mean blank. You fill it in. He'd want this for me because he'd want me to be happy, right? See, these men, I think we have to say by an incredible strength given to them by the Holy Spirit, were uncompromising in their faith. And in this lonely display of courage, in addition to the promised consequences of death, think about the social pressure for them to bow, they declared their God, a God that demands that He has no rivals. So, how does this apply to us today before we move on? Well, I think it naturally brings up for us, God's people, exiles in a foreign land, it brings up for us the issue of allegiance. The world, the flesh, 
the devil. They all want allegiance. They all want worship. And thankfully, we live in a day and an age and in a nation that we are not being asked to bow to a literal statue, but we are being asked to bow in subtle ways every day. As we've said before, to make good things ultimate things. Yet the God of Daniel, the God of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah is the same God today. He wants your allegiance. He wants your first. He wants your best. He wants no rivals in your life. And God doesn't want that because He's some egotistical mess as we think of the word. No, God demands that because He's God. And there is no one greater. There is no greater good. And therefore, He is first and foremost what you need and what in your heart of hearts you really want. And sin tells you a lie every time there's a cross in the road and it's do I follow God or do I follow my flesh? Your flesh tells you this is what you want, this is what you need, and it's a lie. The counterfeit gods of this world, whether they be money, security, power, relationship, comfort, self, they're lifeless, they're life-draining, they're not life-giving. And so Jesus reminds us, God's Word reminds us through Jesus' Word, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. God demands no rivals. Where's your energy, your resources, your heart pouring into? Have you made good things ultimate things? Where have you compromised? This can be hard to discern. This can be even harder to stand. So we need wisdom. We need grace. We need His Spirit. The God who knows what you need the God who knows those who are His own demands no rivals. That's the first thing I want us to think about and let the Holy Spirit challenge us with this morning. The second is this. If that first point was a bit of a hammer, the second point is the salve, the healing balm. And it's this. The fire can't consume the faithful. The fire can't consume the faithful. We all love stories of survival, not just stories of survival, but stories of rescue. There was one a week or so ago of two women who had drifted uh, off course and were rescued 900 miles off the coast of Japan, being adrift at sea for five months in a sailboat that didn't work. It's a great story, scary, ultimately wonderful that they got rescued, but I wouldn't call their survival miraculous. They were able to stay in a boat. They had enough food to ration because they were on a long journey. It's a beautiful story, but it wasn't miraculous. This story is an unbelievable, supernatural no other way to explain it 
miracle of God. As we jump back into the passage, I want us to look again at the end of verse 15 and the verses that follow. Nebuchadnezzar has become livid over this defiant refusal to, to bow to his power, to bow to his authority. And after giving these men a second chance, what does he say? He says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, we have no need to answer you. If, all, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is faith in the face of fire. And, and notice, and this is important, this is not faith, or I should say faith is not, faith is not confidence in the results. Faith is confidence in the God of all results. See, these three men, they didn't make their stand based on the promise that they would be rescued. They made their stand based upon who they knew God to be. They knew that Yahweh could save them from the fire, but if he didn't, and that would be his prerogative, it would still be deliverance for them. One commentator I was reading this week summed it up, I think, well. He says, faith does not predict God's ways. It simply holds to God's Word. Faith obeys God's truth. It does not manipulate God's hand. Faith is not required to plot God's course, but only to obey God's command. You see, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they didn't know how it was all going to work out, but they knew that even if the fire consumed them, that ultimately the fire can't consume the faithful. Perhaps Isaiah's words to these three Jewish young men were, were words that they had put to memory. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Even before that, the Lord had given His people a picture of being rescued from the furnace. Deuteronomy 4.20, Moses had reminded God's people, the Lord has taken you, Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of His own inheritance. And even if these three Jews didn't remember those words that God had given them, those promises, they still likely could not have imagined how the Lord would meet them. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on this fourth individual in the furnace. We, we simply can't say with certainty that this is Jesus. Oh, I want it to be Jesus. Maybe it is Jesus a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. But if it's not, it's at least a ministering angel 
It's at least a host of heaven. At the end of the day, it is the presence of the Lord to his people in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the furnace. And that is the comfort for us here today. These three men, they walked out, and you can imagine almost these, all these, these Babylonian officials, they're, they're sniffing him, they're, they're sniffing their hair, they're, they're doing all sorts of weird, funky stuff because they can't believe they don't, they don't smell like a campfire. They're unscathed. And then there's John Huss. John Huss, the great pre-reformer, tied to a stake by the church for his faithfulness to God's Word. The flames were lit, and what happened? He was burned. He was burned to nothing. You see, two stories. Two very different outcomes, but one faithful God and one powerful message of comfort. No matter the outcome, Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael had faith in this God and were resigned to whatever he wanted in the fire. John Huss had faith in this God. And he was resigned to whatever God wanted in the fire. The Lord is with His people in the furnace. And whether it burns you or not, it is, not pow- it is powerless to consume you. The end of Hebrews 11, I think, it's a f- passage that's familiar with, with many of us. It's the great hall of faith. And it's interesting in this regard. In fact, let's, let's turn there. If you have your Bibles, turn with me real briefly to Hebrews chapter 11 because I want to read kind of an extended portion as we close. Hebrews chapter 11. This hall of faith, and after extolling all of the, the giants, the writer recounts the miracles starting in verse 32. And I think Daniel and his friends would be included in this description, though they're not named explicitly. Starting in verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11, follow along if, if you're there. He says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And in the same breath, he continues in the middle of verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better 
for us. You see, same faith, same commendation, and yet very different results. Depending upon, if you look in verse 34 or verse 36. And yet one faithful God, a God who proved His love to you and to me as He sent His Son, Emmanuel, God with us, to be abandoned in the wrath of God, to be consumed, so to speak, by the fire of God's wrath and by the consuming fire of that holiness that we might never face it. See, this is the gospel, and this is where ultimately all of the salvation story, the redemption, the rescue, the miracle of Daniel chapter 3 is pointing. It's pointing to Jesus, to the accomplished work that He came to do, and to the words that He left His followers, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I don't know every trial that you in this room are suffering. I know that some of you are suffering. You're suffering physically, you're suffering emotionally, you're suffering relationally. Some of you are shamed and and plagued by your sin, and you're longing for deliverance. Here is hope, people of God. Here is comfort. You need to hear and believe the message of Daniel 3, that there is nothing better, there is no one greater. He is able, He is good, and He is with us. May God give us the grace in the face of the fire to believe, to endure, and to stand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the truth of the gospel and the work of Jesus on our behalf that we cling to, even in our unfaithfulness, even in our tripping and falling and distraction. and Father, in all of that, we cling to our Savior, the faithful one, the one who is in the fire with us. The one who gives us hope. May we know that comfort. May we know that peace. May your people experience it in real ways as they struggle. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.